Uh, we are preaching through the, the book of Paul's letter to the Galatian church. Uh, you can find it. There are black Bibles around the room. You can find those. Uh, the, you can find Paul's letter to the Galatians on page 916 in the black Bibles around the room. I would encourage you, if you see one under your seat or around you, or if you have your own Bible or you have an app on your phone, uh, to interact with God's Word this morning. I'm going to read through it, and then we're going to jump in. By way of introduction... Um, Paul is writing to the Galatians because they have they, they are churches the Apostle Paul has um, established after uh, Jesus Christ has been crucified, resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And Paul has been traveling on missionary journeys seeking to establish and congregate followers of Jesus in new communities called churches, and he is setting them on their own two feet uh, with uh, the teaching of Jesus Christ and their doctrine, but then he moves on and he plants more churches. And these Galatians, it's likely a family of different churches in the region of Galatia, they have been infiltrated by false teachers who have come down from Jerusalem saying that Peter sent them and other apostles sent them. And what these false teachers are teaching these Galatian churches is that, yes, you are saved by faith in Christ, absolutely, plus your performance, plus your keeping of the law. You must believe in Jesus, and you must live according to Old Testament law. That's the way that you are saved. And Paul is writing to these Galatians because of this false teaching. He's saying, no, 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 not a chance. You are saved and justified. That is made righteous and acceptable before God based on faith in Christ's work alone. And through your justification, the Father adopts you, and the righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to our account. And it's from that place that our lives actually begin to change because the Holy Spirit moves into our heart, into our life, and he begins to compel us to become more and more righteous. That's the process of sanctification. So that's a summary of Galatians and what Paul is trying to do. We're going to dig in into chapter 5. There's only a total of six chapters here. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. It's on page 916 in the Black Bible. So read with me. But I say, Paul, Paul says, Walk by the Spirit, notice the capital S to Spirit there, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, Galatians, Paul is saying, that those who do such things or who make a practice of such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit or the Holy Spirit is love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. This is God's word. Father, would you speak to us this morning and make it clear to us? 
Would you speak to each individual in this room directly where they need to be spoken to? Would you give us understanding? Would you help us to worship you? Would you help us to reject the works of our flesh and to walk and increasingly walk being led by the Holy Spirit? In Christ's name, God's church said, amen. Hey, uh, to-do lists. Love them or hate them, we live by them. Love them or hate them, we live by them. In life, we have obligations, and in life, we also have diversions. So obligations for us are things like working around the house. They're things like our studies, things like the responsibilities that we owe to our families, things like the responsibilities that we have to our jobs and careers. But a diversion is anything that takes us off course from our obligations. And a discipline that I have been learning and practicing lately is the art of saying no. Uh, in my uh, journal this morning, there's a quote at the top of it from uh, Anne Lamott, and she said, no is a complete sentence. It's true. No is a complete sentence. So I've been learning to say no. The reason that I've been learning and practicing this art, really, of saying no, because we live in a FOMO age where we are more upwardly mobile than we have ever been. We have opportunity through communication and through transportation to be in more places more quickly than we ever have before. And so in many ways, we are actually trying to be omnipresent. And we are living fractured and fragmented and hurried lives as a result of our consistent yeses. And so for our quality of life, it is good for us to learn how to say no. It is a great thing to learn to say no to good things in order to say yes to our most important things. J.J. Turbin, last week, he preached through uh, Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 15, and he did so well. He began his message by telling us what the Apostle Paul told these Galatian Christians. And what it is in Galatians 5, 1 through 15 is receive freedom in Christ. These, you've got two options before you. Either receive the freedom that Jesus Christ offers you, or keep what you have already earned according to your own righteousness and according to your own works, and that is death. You'll receive judgment and death. That's the option. Receive the righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ or keep what you've earned, which is judgment and death. And now what Paul is doing with these Galatian Christians as he's writing to them, as he's teaching them how they can receive this freedom in Christ. And thereby Paul will teach us this morning as we look in on God's eternal word 2,000 years later. So a question that I would have for you this morning is, are you listening? Are you tuning your own ears and your mind to consider what God may be saying directly to you this morning? Thus far in Galatians, Paul, he spent four entire chapters just telling the Galatians, explaining how Jesus Christ has earned our salvation. He's earned our justification. We are counted righteous before God, not by our own works, but by appealing to Jesus Christ on our behalf. And he extends and credits his righteousness to us. And so it's through faith in Jesus' work that we receive that righteousness. And as a result, we are secure and we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And now what Paul will do is he'll turn to the Galatians and he is going to teach us thereby. Also, as we look in, he's going to teach us about sanctification. And sanctification is a theological word that essentially means the process, the ongoing process of becoming more and more Christ-like in our here and now lives. 
as you are where you are. Your thoughts, your attitudes, and your actions. Sanctification is the process of God making you functionally more right, making you functionally righteous that will meet at the day that you meet Jesus Christ. That functional righteousness will, when we see him face to face, it will be complete. And it will not just be something that is declared over us, but the reality will be when we see God in glory, we will be as he is, not as God, but as glorified and pure. There will be no more sin affecting us any longer. So Paul in Galatians 5, 16, right at the very first verse that I read this morning, he's going to say, he's going to teach these Galatians to walk by the Spirit. That is what he's requesting that they do. And he's going to repeat this idea, this, this action that he is calling them to throughout chapter 5. He's going to use phrases like and verbs like led by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, display the fruit of the Spirit. In verse 22, live by the Spirit and keep in step literally keep in pace with the Holy Spirit in verse 25. And so this passage that we're in today, this is actually part one. Today is just going to be an introduction to this passage. And then next week we are going to drill down into exactly what the fruit of the Spirit is and how it comes about. So this passage, what it's doing is it's answering a key question that every disciple, every follower of Jesus Christ needs to answer and continually stay fresh on. I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. Now what? I'm a follower of Jesus. How then should I live? How does God want me to live in light of that? And Paul will say in various ways, walk by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. Great. Jared, now what does that actually mean? How do I actually walk that out and work that out? Like I said, it's a great question and I'm going to answer it next week. So my hope is, is that you will uh, return, but, or listen to our podcast next week just to wrap this teaching up. But here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to clarify what walking by the Spirit isn't. That's what we're going to clarify this morning. When we ask the question, now what? We're asking a question about priority. We're asking the question, what gets my attention next? What is the next best thing? And Paul answers in verse 16 with an affirmation of our new priority. Our new priority as followers of Jesus is to walk by the Spirit. If you look down at verse 25, he'll bookend this passage by saying, keep in step with the Spirit. Priority, the word priority, it's a funny word in our day. Uh, author Greg McEwen, in, in a book that he's written called Essentialism, uh, he, he, he basically unpacks the etymology or the history of the word priority. Priority came into the English language in the 1400s, and essentially it means first thing or prior thing. And in the 1400s, as it came into our language, it was a singular word. And it remained that way for the next 500 years. But in the 1900s, something peculiar and interesting happened to the word priority. We pluralized it. We said priorities. We are going to have priorities. Illogically, we reasoned that by changing the word and making it plural, we could actually bend reality somehow we would now be able to have multiple first things. You see the fallacy in that. I can have multiple first things. We cannot have multiple first things. If everything is a priority, then nothing in reality is. At the fall, uh, humanity, we became a divided people. 
We're stamped with the image of God. We're created in the image of God. But the image now through our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden walking away and rebelling against God, trying to be like God but without God, introduced immorality, introduced sin into the world, introduced rebellion into the world. And so we are stamped and created with the image of God. But now we recognize that we live a kind of duality. We are marred by sin. Every human being in some sense is divided and there's goodness still lingering in the human heart. But a new master, our flesh, reigns over it. Americans, as Americans, we're familiar with the logic, the reasons that you can't serve two masters. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, as he was preparing uh, in Illinois, I believe, in 1858, as he was uh, seeking to be a representative, as the, the Civil War was looming on the United States, he gave a speech that is now famous. It's called his House Divided Speech, and it goes like, a portion of it goes like this. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Abraham Lincoln said, I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. He said, I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. And many of us Americans are familiar with Abraham Lincoln's house divided speech, but many of us don't yet realize that his wisdom source is Jesus Christ himself. He was picking up the words of Jesus Christ written in about 30 A.D. Every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Elsewhere, Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 6, no one can serve two masters. He's either going to hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and he will despise the other. And he finished his teaching by saying, you cannot serve both God and money. Jesus Christ knew that we could not serve two masters, right? Jesus is instructing his hearers here to prioritize one master by abandoning the other master. Otherwise, we will not live as integrated people. We will live as divided people. And so in Galatians chapter 5, hang with me here, Paul is arguing from the very same unified logic. To serve the desires of our flesh is to live in opposition to the will of God. To walk, though, rather by the Spirit invites the children of God to abundant life and peace. Thabiti Anyabwile, he's a, a pastor in Washington, D.C. He said there is an irreconcilable war going on between the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the flesh. The Spirit of God wants one thing for our lives. The flesh de- desires another thing for our lives. The two do not overlap or cooperate at any point. Literally, Paul will say in 517 that they are opposed to one another. And so, Thabiti says, we must choose sides in this war. We must choose between our flesh and the Spirit. So to choose our master, to choose your masters, to choose your inheritance. Do you want the things that come by the work of the flesh, just your human heart apart from God, or do you want the inheritance that comes through the Spirit of God living within you? To choose our masters, to choose our future, to choose who it is that we submit to and who it is that we follow is to choose our eventual legacy. In Galatians 5, we'll see two main subjects. The Galatians are the main subject in Galatians 5, 16 through 26, but we'll also see some competing subjects which are the flesh and the spirit. 
When the Bible, when it speaks, especially the New Testament, when it speaks of this word flesh, it's not talking about your skin. It's not talking about our meat. What it is talking about is rather the old and ordinary human nature that does not relish the things of God and prefers instead to get satisfaction from independence from God. The old human nature prefers to get our satisfaction from independence from God, from asserting power over others, from seeking prestige for ourselves and satisfaction as we consume worldly pleasures. So whenever the Apostle Paul uses the word flesh, or whenever I use the word flesh this morning, or whenever you see the New Testament use the word flesh as it relates to human nature, that's the sense of its meaning. And on the other hand, Paul also, he mentions the Spirit. You'll notice the, the Spirit is continually capitalized throughout this section. It's the Greek word pneuma, and he's speaking of the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about, whenever the New Testament speaks about the Holy Spirit, he's not talking about a phantom. He's not talking about an electrical force, a life force. He's not talking about, the Bible isn't talking about any of that, nor is the Bible saying it's an attitude or a disposition, such as I really like the spirit of that person, the energy that they bring to the table. Rather, he's talking about the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. That's what is being uh, talked about here, is the person of the Holy Spirit. Whenever you speak of the Holy Spirit, don't refer to him as an it. Refer to him as a he or a him, because the Holy Spirit is a person with individual personhood. In, the ni in, in 325, uh, some theologians and church leaders got together because there was a heresy that was going all throughout the land. It was, the, uh, it was a heresy called Arianism. And Arianism was the assertion that Jesus Christ was actually created by the Father, that he is God, was God, but he was, but he was actually created. Uh, they would assert that the word begotten meant that the Father created Jesus. Essentially, there was a time when the Son was not. There was a time when Jesus was not. But these theologians got together and they said, no, 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 that's not actually what the Scriptures teach. And so they would write this creed to protect the Trinity. And then in 381, they got together and they said, we need to add the person of the Holy Spirit into uh, this creed, the Nicene Creed as well, because we see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all as co-equal and co-eternal. It's hard for us to understand, but we see a unified God in three persons with distinct personalities and roles. The Nicene Creed would say about the Holy Spirit, and we believe in the Holy Ghost. That's the old-fashioned way of saying the Holy Spirit. The Lord, this is, keep in mind, this is written in 325. The Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father. That word proceeds means who's sent from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son, Jesus, together is worshipped and glorified the Holy Spirit spoke to us by the prophets, saying essentially, thus saith the Lord, which is where we get the writings of our Old Testament. And the Holy Spirit wrote the New Testament through men as he carried them along, Peter says. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is an individual. The Holy Spirit has personhood. The Holy Spirit is, like I've said, uncreated, and he is co-eternal with the Father and the Son. The new city catechism uh, put out by Tim Keller's church in New York 
uh, which is kind of a new uh, catechism. It says the Holy Spirit, what he does in our lives is he convicts us of our sin. He comforts us. He guides us. He gives us spiritual gifts, imparts to us new spiritual gifts at our new birth. And he not only does that, but he puts with the Holy Spirit puts within us the desire to obey God. And not only that, but he enables us to pray. He compels us to pray, and not only that, but to uh, understand God's word. The Holy Spirit illuminates God's word as we, be, as we read it. John Piper, uh, he would define walking by the Spirit. So Paul is, remember, Paul is saying, if you walk by the Spirit, you're not going to gratify the deeds of the flesh. You're not going to gratify the flesh. And he's saying, Paul is saying in Galatians 5, 17, that they are opposed to each other. So then John Piper, I think he gives us a helpful definition of what walking by the Spirit is. It's what we do when the desires that are produced within us by the Holy Spirit are stronger than the desires produced by the flesh. Walking by the Spirit, if this is the Spirit and this is the desires of our flesh, walking by the Spirit is when this begins to happen. Right? But we know as human beings that we are mixed bags, are we not? And our lives in reality look very much like this at times. Do they not? When we are walking in the Spirit, when we are walking by the Spirit, the desires of the Spirit begin to overshadow and compel us to put down and to put away the desires of the flesh. Now, Paul does us a favor in Galatians chapter 5. He gets granular here. He gets really specific about what the works of the flesh are. He's identifying the attributes of a flesh-led life, right? Talk is so cheap. Talk is incredibly cheap. Someone led by the flesh, they might have all the right words, they might have all the right right theology, they might have all of the right things coming out of their mouth, but look at the record of their life once they profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And that will tell you likely where their heart is. That will reveal to me where mine is as we look. Jesus would say, Look at their fruits. It's by a person, the fruit of their life, the outcome, their way of life, that you will know them. The works of the flesh, Paul says, are evident. Look at verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. That is to say, the works, what what a flesh-led life looks like, it's evident. It's plain to see. And then he's just going to give us this running list here. He's going to categorize them in a few different categories. We're going to go through these because I want to, I want to bring some specificity to these words. We may think we know what they mean, but, but there are English attempts at best getting at what Paul is writing here in the Greek. We're not going to geek out on word studies or anything like that. So stay with me, but I want to bring clarity and definition. I want to bring some higher definition to these words. He categorizes them in three categories. Sexual, you'll see that. Sexuality, impurity. Um, There's another one that he lists there right after it. Sensuality. And then he'll uh, categorize them in a religious category. You'll see their idolatry and sorcery. We'll bring some clarity to those. And then uh, he'll use the category of relational works of the flesh. These are a combination of our attitudes and uh, our actions that are works of the flesh and that are evident. Okay? So sexual sins are sins against 
our own bodies and souls. Yes, in every single one of these categories, we sin against God who is holy. We walk away from him in our unbelief and we try to get ours. We try to get what it is that we want. So I'm not saying that these are only sins against the body. I'm saying they're particularly sins against the body when we think about them in human terms. Sexual sins are sins against our bodies and also our souls. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul will uh, illuminate this as well as he writes to the church in Corinth. But sexual immorality, it comes from the, the Greek word porneia. It's where we have the root of pornography from. What Paul likely means in his use of sexual immorality here is intercourse between uh, unmarried people, fornication between unmarried people, but also uh, intimacy, physical intimacy between people who are married but not married to one another. Uh, and, and all other kind of rampant physical actions of sexuality. Uh, he's using also this word impurity. Uh, th these, this speaks of unnatural sexual practices and relationships. So think about uh, promiscuity, think about homosexuality, think about s uh, sexual perversions, the rampant use of pornography, rampant sexual addiction. That's what, he's, that's what is all kind of wrapped up in this word impurity. Then he also uses a word here, sensuality, which is nuance. This is essentially debauchery. This is uncontrolled, excessive sexuality. We've all probably been around, or maybe some of us have been that person, where we're just, everything is a sex joke. Everything is a comment about somebody's features. Every, like, we are consumed and compelled by sexuality. That is debauchery. Then he has this category of religious sin. These are overt sins against God in the way that we direct our worship. So he mentions idolatry. It's probably best not to think of a broad uh, term idolatry here where we turn good things into gods like our careers, uh, like our children, uh, like a friend whose approval or a partner whose, appro whose approval we crave. It's pr that's probably not actually how Paul means idolatry in this sense, in this passage. Rather, he's probably talking about uh, overt worship of a false god meaning that we are a member of another religion, rejecting Jesus Christ and instead worshiping Allah or worshiping uh, the Hindu gods, the millions of Hindu gods, or worshiping other uh, gods in, our, in a belief system. That's probably what he means by idolatry. Notice he also mentions sorcery here. He's probably talking about, he is talking about rather, uh, witchcraft, essentially, whereby we try to kind of manipulate the dark powers in the world around us to bring about certain circumstances or to bring about events uh, in our favor. So this would include things like invoking curses. This would inv involve things like practicing Wicca, relying on hor horoscopes, tarot, reading our palms, etc. He's saying that these are evident and overt works of the flesh, that they are evil and ungodly, and they are opposed to the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God is opposed to them. And then he moves into relational, this relational category, which these are sins, these are sinful actions and attitudes committed against other people. Notice he uses the word here, enmity. The root of the word enmity, I was doing some study on the etymology of it. It's really interesting. From the Latin, it actually comes from the word enemy, which literally means bad friend. Liter literally, enmity means a person who is acting as a bad friend, actively opposed to the people around them, trying to undermine, trying to subject, acting as an enemy. Paul mentions strife here. This is contentiousness. 
always looking for a fight, always quarrelsome. Yeah, but what? Yeah, but what about? Yeah, but what about? Yeah, but what about? But did you think about that? But did you, like, we've been around those people. Those people are exhausting. The kind of person who just is continually arguing with you and creating discord. The Apostle Paul, that's a work of the flesh. That's opposed to the Spirit of God. He also mentions here jealousy. This is, uh, there's, there's one sense where jealousy is a good thing, where you're jealous for your child when they are going wayward, or you're jealous for a husband or a wife as they are going wayward. There is good jealousy where you want what you, you want for them, what they should be wanting for themselves as well. But there's also a kind of fleshly jealousy that's a greedy, prideful longing for something that belongs to another person. Even um, categorically, things like in, intangibles, like skills, or like jealous of people's reputations, where you, you, you guys know, come on, like we know those moments when we're looking at somebody and we're like, man, I really want that. Like there's envy in there, but there's also, there's also jealousy where we become jealous of a person or what a person has. Paul also mentions here this phrase, fits of anger. What this literally means is quick-tempered. Fits of anger here means quick-tempered, easily angered, raging. You in traffic. Just saying. You and you and I, when we walk out the door and we see that neighbor that like just sets us off, whatever it might be. Fits of anger. When you think about a child, a child throws fits and they throw, and they throw them often, right? Fits of anger are these consistent outbursts of annoyance and anger we should not, so this, this is probably one that like most easily, I think many of us could see ourselves in this category to varying degrees, all right? We should not write this off as a personality trait. Paul doesn't. We should not write this off as a genetic issue, heritage from family. We should wholeheartedly be opposed to the people of Jesus to fits of anger, and we should put it to death by the power of the Holy Spirit as a work of the flesh opposed to God. Paul uses this word rivalries here. This is selfish ambition, overly competitive with a self-seeking motive. He mentions dissension here. This is discord that splits up, that works into a unified whole and splits up a group. Discord is usually always at play in church splits. And discord often and dissension often leads to divisions and factions. Now, what some of your translations will say factions, some will say uh, divisions. But the point here is that it's a party spirit. It's the kind of party spirit that creates division where there should be no division. Now, I'm going to rattle some of your cages in just a moment. Our current partisan political climate in our country is overwhelmingly showing this work of the flesh, opposed to the Spirit of God, where Republicans hate Democrats because they're Democrats. And Democrats hate our president and Republicans because they, they, 
are Republicans or they claim to be Republicans. And we should be united but are divided. And the vitriol that is getting exchanged back and forth from our highest seat in the country to our other political local representatives in this community, it is vitriolic and it should be opposed lovingly by the people of God. It is a work of the flesh and it is evil. So where you are participating in it, in person and on your social media, God says, stop. Envy. Spite and resentment towards success or the possessions of another person. And then Paul lists here drunkenness. And he also lists this word orgies. We might quickly go to like sexual orgies here. It's probably not actually what Paul is getting at. He's probably speaking of drunkenness, like drunken orgies. These two words are, um, are linked, like think rager. Think you're just a person that's just always going to ragers. I used to, I spent a decade of my life partying. So I was giving myself to uh, this. One of the works of the flesh is addiction to pleasure-creating substances and behaviors. And then notice Paul just throws on a long, a long et cetera right here. And things like these. So he's like, I'm just getting started, and there are a lot of other things that are evident works of the flesh, not only limited to things that he's directly named. So our human desire, it's got desire, our human nature, we have desires, we have hungers, and many of our hungers we need to realize are opposed to God. And so for followers of of Jesus in the room, you know that the Christian life is tough, do you not? You recognize the internal war within you that's going on in you. You desire by the power of the Holy Spirit within you to honor God and to set Him apart as the one you worship while in the same breath often desiring and doing the very things that He opposes. And you know it's at play. You're not oblivious to these things and neither am I. And so Paul gives a clarifying warning to the Galatians and thereby to us in verse 21 where he says, those who make a practice of such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who make a practice of such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I'm going to say it again. Those who make a practice of the works of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. So a question to be asking yourself this morning is, am I mastered by one or more of these marks of the flesh? And take note here. Don't just write it off. It's how I am. It's who I am. Galatians 5.1, it is for your freedom that Christ has come to you, that he has shown himself to you as real, and that the Spirit of God has awakened your conscience to, to, to become aware of that war within you. Paul, the very guy who was writing to these Galatians here, he struggled in exactly the same way we do. In Romans chapter 7, He'll write, he'll write, and he'll make these statements that have, that, that have just stuck in my head and heart for a decade or more. He'll say, he's frustrated, you can hear it in his tone. He'll say, why do I keep doing the things that I don't want to do? And why do I not do the things that I do want to do? And then you can just hear his frustration. He'll say, wretched man that I am. And then you can see his gaze like fixed from him, moved from fixed upon himself. You can almost feel on the pages his gaze fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, thanks be to my God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He will be the one who rescues me eventually from this body of death. But he's doing so in the present now through the work of the Holy Spirit. Notice Paul calls the works of the flesh works. 
and he attributes them to us. The works of the flesh in this passage are our works, the fruit of our life apart from God, and there must be a law against them. Otherwise, we will, like Paul said in the passage that J.J. taught through last week, we will bite and devour one another. Be careful, Paul warned. You will end up consuming each other. But now, look at verse 22, and look at the first word of verse 22. He says the word what? But. But. It's a transition word. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy. It's peace. It's patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Self-control. And he says, against such things, there is no law. You cannot have an overabundance. You cannot have an overindulgence in love and in joy and in patience and in goodness and in gentleness, peace, self-control, faithfulness. The work of the human heart on its own is described in the first list, the works of the flesh. The legacy of the born-again-by-God heart is described in the second list of attributes. So how does a person come to be known by or for the fruit produced by the Holy Spirit? First, that person must have a new heart. That is required. To be known, by, uh, to be known for the fruit of the Holy Spirit, you must be born again. Jesus Christ himself would teach in John 3. You must have a new heart. It is God who gives this new heart, and it is God alone. Paul, as you would write to the Roman church in Romans 10, we've got about five minutes, settle in with me, hang with me, keep your attention. Romans 10, verses 9 through 11. If you openly declare, speaking this publicly, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, Anyone who trusts in him, that is Jesus Christ, will never be disgraced. It is also God who instigates and facilitates the new fruit of a new life described in verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit, and this is just a teaser for next week, it is not your to-do list. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is just not some more stuff for you to white-knuckle so that God will hopefully accept you at the end of your life. The fruit of the Holy Spirit comes because you are accepted by God based on your faith. The Holy Spirit moves into our life and begins to work this fruit out of our lives. Yes, we actively give ourselves to it in participation, but we are doing so as we look to the Holy Spirit as our leader. Be led by the Holy Spirit. Walk by the Holy Spirit. Keep pace or keep in step with the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is more evidence of God's grace, God's kindness, God's generosity among his people. The list of nine fruit here, they're, uh, they're not, it, notice it doesn't say fruits, but it says the fruit. All of these things should be present in a believer's life, and then we'll get into this more next week, but they will be growing at different degrees at different times in our life. The Holy Spirit produces this fruit in those whose new hearts belong to Christ Jesus. Now, Ezekiel chapter 
36, 26, and 27. This is 600 years before Jesus showed up. This is what God spoke to the people of Israel, but he was also looking beyond to the people of the new covenant. That is people who are Christians and who belong to Jesus Christ. God promised this to the people of Israel and those in the new covenant. I will give you a new heart. This is his promise to you. It's not you need to make for yourself a new heart. It's I will give you, grant you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your, listen to this descriptor, your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart, and I will put my spirit, notice the capital S there, Holy Spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. Ezekiel is foretelling the new covenant which God would bring about in humanity through the life, through the death, through the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And all who place their trust in Jesus Christ will not only be declared righteous in the sight of God, but God will bring about actual righteousness into reality through the indwelling of his spirit within us. Do you see how much he is doing for us? In life, every single one of us has obligations. And in life, every single one of us has diversions. Some obligations far more important than others, right? Feeding my children should be higher on my to-do list than feeding my appetite by watching another episode on Disney+. Plus. Right? Right? There's a higher priority than all the other things of importance, than all other things of importance in your life. There's a higher priority than all other things of importance in your life. It's not one of many first things. It's the first thing. It's the decision. It's a decision that rather must be made by you today, not put off until tomorrow, not when you get around to it, not when you get your act together a little bit more and feel more acceptable in the sight of God. Here's the decision before each one of us. Will we walk with God, the Holy Spirit? Is that a desire that we see and have, or will we cling to our old ways? This is the question for the most mature, long-standing follower of Christ in the room. And it's the same question that must be answered by the person who desires to belong to Christ but is totally unsure whether or not you do. And our path is the same. Immature Christian, mature Christian, non-believer. It's to walk by the Spirit of God. It's to choose to be led by Him. It's to choose to reject the legacy of your flesh and instead to reconsider your priority singular. Three points of application for today, really quick. Number one, decide. Will you follow Christ and walk by His Spirit, or will you continue following you as the master of your destiny? Here's another point of application. Pray a simple prayer in an ongoing way, in your own words like this. Holy Spirit, would you tune my ear to know your voice and tune my heart to desire to be in step with you? tune my ear to hear your voice, to know when it is that you're speaking to me, but also to compel and to create a desire within me to want to follow you. And then here's a third point of application. Come back next week. And if you can't, listen to this, this next weekend's podcast. Uh, I'm going to drill down on every single one of the fruit of the Spirit and how these all, not just one or two, but all of them will come about in the life or should come about in the life of a follower of Jesus. And, and this is a, a hint and just a phrase that I want to be echoing in your mind. The fruit of the Spirit is not your to-do list. 
the fruit of the Spirit is not your to-do list. Pray with me. Father, we, uh, your people, are gathered here this morning uh, considering uh, a chunk of text that uh, is straightforward but incredibly complex at the same time as we start to think about the ways that it applies to our life. And so, Holy Spirit, would you protect every single person in this room from making it over complex, but to respond to you in simplicity, to tune our ears, to hear your voice as you speak to us, and to create an inner desire within us that we would follow you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.